Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. You're listening to the Aramco 2022 F1 Car Reveal Series. The race is on, and AlphaTauri has done what its big brother team Red Bull didn't and actually produced a real car for the launch of the AT03. Although it was only in the form of renders with some aspects hidden, it at least gives us an idea about the new car and also a few hints about what to expect from the RB18. I'm Ed Straw, and joining me to analyse the latest 22F1 car are Mark Hughes and Gary Anderson. Well, Mark, a low-key but functional launch from AlphaTauri that at least gives us some idea about the car, even if there probably is scope for more detail in the real thing. Yeah, there's some detail around the floor and the the rear uh, suspension, which is um, either disguised or missing altogether, but we will get a general idea of the layout at least, and uh, there's quite a bit of detail on the front, and it looks for a pretty neat little car. Um, um, you know, I think we have to take it on faith that this is more or less what the real car will look like because it will be appearing tomorrow in testing. So, um, yeah, it, it's uh, it, it's yet another variation, the, the fourth real car, or the fourth, you know, the, the genuine representation of the uh, cars that we've seen so far. And yet again, it's, it's slightly different again. So um, definitely uh, we're seeing a lot of variation and the, the early interpretation of these new regs which is a, a good thing i feel and gary it does seem like it's a little bit of a midpoint between what we've seen from aston martin and mclaren in some aspects yeah it is i think it's it's quite interesting to see that as mark says we're seeing some variation between the cars i mean the the, the thing is the, the regulations are so predictive or they are you know every point's already laid out you can alter some things some places so if you are not a car fan necessarily and you're just looking at these as individual pictures you would you would struggle a little bit to see too much difference in them but there is very well detailed subtle differences between them and that and that's going to be important because you know way back you know in the in the, in the early 90s sort of thing you could go to the wind tunnel for a couple of days and you'd find two three four five percent more downforce just by you know scratching your head a little bit and changing a few bits and pieces and that and that's you know diminished as the years have gone by and again, it's the same from from last year to this year. It's diminished, so it'll be the same, you know, same development process to try and achieve bits and pieces. But the details so much, so much less. Uh, the, the opportunity is so much less. Sorry, and the detail has to be so much more important. So it's just small things that makes the difference. And I, and I quite like it, especially the side pod arrangement. And that, as I say, it's a it's a compromise between what uh, Aston Martin have come up with and what McLaren have come up with. But it's a it's a good. A good solid compromise. It, it looks functional to me. Well, let's talk about the side pods in a bit more detail. As you say, it, it is that compromise in that the, the cutback side pods, as it were, but there's still enough there for that to be that kind of downwash area towards the back that feeds it into the top of the diffuser area. There's none of the cooling louvers we've seen on the Aston Martin, so it's like the McLaren in in that regard. But do you think it's a question of this is a good compromise it's taking the best of both worlds or do you think we might see a little bit more cleverness here with the real car you know you're not going all out one way 
um, in, in your design package. You, the whole objective of the car is to basically get airflow into the leading edge of the underfloor and allow the diffuser to work it as hard as possible. And to do that, you know, you, you can't force air into that area. You have to suck it into that area. So you have to give it the best opportunity possible. You have to open up all the all the all the volume around the front of the car there. So you you have your you know your radiator cooling requirement, and obviously they've they've minimised that as best they can. Um, and the fact that it's got a the the top edge of it is as high as you can put it, um, and then that allows them to put the bottom edge up high as high as possible. And they also want to try and keep that. Uh, outer edge from uh, getting involved in the tire wake so you know you end up with this rectangle shape now which is completely different from the past um, but the main aim of that is to get allow the, the leading edge of the floor to sit out in the middle of nowhere so it's not getting um, uh, any any sort of involvement with any of the rest of the floor it's open to doing its own thing and allow the diffuser to suck the airflow through there but in doing that you also are making the top of the diffuser suck the airflow through the top of it so the the leading edge of the underfloor is an independent piece of kit sitting out there with airflow being sucked over the top of it and underneath it so it's free to take whatever airflow it wants the the direction of the airflow is quite important but that's coming off the wishbones and the fact you have a big undercut in the side pods and that opens through the car to the as i say the coke bottle area or the top of the diffuser the airflow over the top surface is just as important as the airflow under the bottom surface. One of them's giving you downforce, and the other one's just um, enhancing that downforce by by having a, an open hole, so the airflow doesn't get pushed around the car in certain directions. Um, and then they've, they've made the you know the treatment with the side pod where they brought the top of it down and in as well. So they've they've sort of got the best of both worlds from it, I suppose you might call it. They got the they got the undercut tunnel, they got the uh, the flow over the top of the side pod going down into the same area, and then neatly they brought a, a sort of T a T slot shape out of the out of the top part of the side pod to be their the radiator exit. The radiator exit looks quite big on it to me. Um, the radiator inlet's not small, so I imagine that inside of there the, the the flow through the radiator is you know is quite complicated, uh, and they're trying to sort of introduce a little bit more air to it and get a little bit more air through the radiator. I can see their uh, radiator exits getting smaller as time goes by and maybe some of the louvers appearing um, on the top surface, which you're allowed now. And that can be a tuning device for different uh, ambient temperatures and different surfaces. But as a general thing, I, I like the trend of, you know, if you took those side pods or the radiator intakes off there, you've got an underfloor sitting out in free air. It's, it's, it's got its own leading edge, it's got its undersurface and it's got its top surface. Um, it's it's quite an efficient looking uh, looking package if i could just interject there gary um when you look at the how the the implication of the cooling package of that car compared to the two mercedes ones that we've seen it does look as though it's they've been able to package it a bit more tightly it doesn't yeah. take, seem to take up as much body work as that you think that's a, um, a reflection of the, the the heat rejection of the two engines um, yeah, I think it is. It's also, you know, it's always difficult because you basically you you flow a certain amount of air through a given radiator size. Um, so it depends on, on how they package the radiator in there. Obviously, the, the radiator is it must be lying at quite a, sh a shallow angle. It must be quite a long radiator. Um, we probably will never see that because we never really see the bodywork of these cars. But uh, I look more at the inlet size and the and the exit size on this car. It looks quite 
quite big, I suppose you might call it. It's not small. And that can be good because, you know, if you go around your car trying to make it efficient and produce downforce, um, you can easily con yourself by having far too small a radiator inlet and far too small an exit because the more airflow you use to get to generate downforce, the less airflow you have for cooling and vice versa. So it's very easy to con yourself and then you get to somewhere like Bahrain or whatever, ambience up in the mid-30s and suddenly you're cutting holes in the bodywork. Um, so it, it's better as a team of their size, especially Talfatori, to go the other way and make sure the cooling is adequate. And I think the, the heat rejection figures probably from the Honda are pretty good. Um, but I think they're, you know, they're, they, the radiator exit area, I think, well, you can see it getting shut down a little bit. But we won't know really until we see the cars, I suppose, in competition, you might call it. You know, Barcelona won't really be a good indication because it will it'd probably be struggling to get anywhere near 20 degrees there. Um, but it's a very neat package, and I'd love to see underneath the bodywork to see how well it is uh, detailed and executed. But I like the look of it visually from the outside. I'll have to ask if you can have a rummage around in the garage in Barcelona. Let's hope they'll uh, let you take a proper look. You normally catch a few glimpses of things you shouldn't, though, so I'm sure you'll get some details. While we're towards the back of the car, though, let's talk a little bit about the rear suspension. The launch images have hidden some of the rear suspension detail, but it is effectively our first look at a bit of the Red Bull RB18, because as well as using the Red Bull-badged Honda power unit, AlphaTauri also uses the Red Bull gearbox, hydraulics, and rear suspension. So that's all 2022 spec stuff. So what can you glean from that, Gary? It does look like the uh, the rear lower wishbone is, is very high. Um, I mean, there's been this thing that uh, Mercedes did about getting the, the, the wishbone legs further rearwards on in the 2020 car to try to um, reduce the blockage through there through that area of the coke ball and and that's still important you know the blockage there just slows the airflow down uh, and basically whenever you're trying to produce downforce from uh, from air flowing over the car surface the last thing you want to do is slow it down um, so it looks as though they've, they've gone for a very high lower wishbone getting it away from the higher diffuser um, still the pull rod suspension which you know in the pictures we've got the pull rod is a very small cross-sectional area um, so it's there's no big blockage there it's also round, which is quite good because although you could make a better a be- better flow across an aerodynamic shape of that size, it would only be better with the flow with the flow attacking it at one angle. So having a round rod is not quite as good aerodynamically, but it's more uh, robust to different air- different airflow regimes, which will you know that will change through there with the, the car's rear ride height going up and down. The flow through that area will will, will alter its angle where it's coming from. So we can't quite pick the drive shaft out in the pictures we've seen yet, um, or if we have picked it out, then it's it's uh, not on the wheel centre line, which is a bit strange. And uh, as I say, maybe they've got a see-through drive shaft. But um, again, we need to wait to see the complete car. But the the initial packaging of it looks to me, it's it's okay. They've got the um, the top wishbone with a forward leg lower than the rearward leg. From what we see, it's got some anti-lift in it. So basically that, with the geometry like that, it'll stop the rear of the car from rising up under braking um, quite as much as it as it wants to, I suppose you might call it, because of the way the loads go through the suspension, um, which, is, which is good because that helps the rear of the car to get grip under braking whenever you hit the brake pedal initially because these cars create so much downforce that one of the things you want to do is do as much of your braking as possible immediately. So you stump the brake pedal as hard as you can while the car's got that downforce. And as you're slowing down, obviously the grip is reducing. So 
your ability to break is reducing as well. Um, and that, you know, anti-lift on the rear suspension is quite good for that to, to stop that happening. So, um, yeah, it's it's all there. If it is a, an example of what the Red Bull is going to be like, um, then, you know, we've, we've, we've got someone pretty neat and tidy in that area. And Mark, we assume this is an accurate representation of what will be the Red Bull rear suspension. So do you think if you're McLaren, they'll be getting a little bit worried that they're out on their own with the push rod at the rear? Because we've seen the Mercedes rear suspension that's on the Aston Martin. That's pull rod. McLaren's gone pull rod. They do their own gearbox, so they add some flexibility there. It looks like the Red Bull teams have gone pull rod. So it looks like McLaren's going to be a bit in a bit of a minority on the rear suspension. Oh yeah, maybe even uh, unique, but I just uh, you just have to have um, confidence in your own reasons for doing something, and you know they they've probably um, attacked it from a a different perspective, trying to get a slightly slightly different thing and the characteristic that they're looking for. I doubt very much whether it will be um, one one layout's right and one's wrong, um, but yeah, it, it's. Um, it, it's probably making them a little bit nervous as they see more and more new cars coming out, retaining the the pull rod, which has been the, the convention for the last, or, well, since 20, 2010, really. Adrian put it on the 2009 Red Bull and everybody had it the, the following year. So everybody stayed with that apart from McLaren, who swapped. So, yeah, I'm, I'm sure there'll, there'll be a little bit of concern there, but I doubt whether it'll be serious because they will had the very as i said their own very clear reasons for doing that the one the one thing i just add into that area is the diffuser on these new cars is is narrower than the the old cars the old cars the diffuser was sort of swept out to the the, the width of the inside of the rear tires to try and get the, the low pressure area behind the tire to help the diffuser work this these diffusers are a bit narrower so there's there's some very um decent sort of ski ramps i think you might call them mounted on the inside of the rear brake drums the old cars had the same thing. Uh, last year's cars had the same thing, but not to the extent of these ones. And that area is basically generates very good downforce. It, it's downforce directly onto the unsprung weight, which means that the load that they create goes directly into the tyre. It doesn't go through the suspension before it gets to the tyre. And whenever I say it goes through the suspension, that downforce that's created on the sprung part of the car means that whenever you're braking, the car's moving. You know, that downforce is changing because of the movement, never mind the load. The load might stay the same, but the damping becomes much more critical because you've got the downforce on the sprung part and that's moving. So if you have, let's say, high rebound, you're unloading the rear tyre quite a bit initially um, because you get weight transfer in these cars when you're braking. So having these these ramps on the, uh, or turning the ends, whatever you like to call them, on the inside of the brake duct is a big thing because, as I said, the load goes directly onto the contact patch. It doesn't move around while you're braking. It's there all the time. And that, I think, is really quite important for, especially on braking, uh, for rear consistency, rear grip consistency. So uh, by having the push rod there, the, the end of it coming down at the outboard end and up at the inboard end means that it's going across that, that area where you want that flow to go through on the inside or the outside wall of the diffuser to those ramps. So... I I'm I say I'm not a big fan of the push rod just yet on the rear of the car because I, I can't see the positive of it yet. But, you know, we'll see. Maybe somebody else will come out with it as well and it'll be the big, um, you know, the, the magic bullet. But uh, I don't quite see it. It's interesting, isn't it? I'm looking at the pictures of the Aston Martin testing and how how flat it was running 
it looks as though these cars are really like the the the, the one to be run with with no rake or even maybe even negative rake. Could you forget? I guess to get those venturis working. I'm. It's one of those sort of things. Obviously, if you put more rake into the car, you increase the size of the diffuser, but that's only relative to how much leak you get down the side of the car. I didn't quite pick up a while back that the uh, the sides of the of the floor are now lower than they were before. So there's no there's no fifty mil step there at the outside edge of it. So you know, although you don't have a skirt, getting that closer to the ground is is probably easier to get the the downforce out of the underfloor than trying to create some aerodynamic flow that will will try to seal the side of the car. Red Bull have sort of been the masters of that over the past few years. So we have to sort of wait and see what they come up with. But on face value now and understanding what the cars look like a little bit better, I I think it's right that you would be interested in getting the back of the car low as quickly as possible. And, you know, that could be a reason to play with what Mercedes had last year as far as the rear ride height, um, having some type of mechanism that allowed it to be lower quicker because obviously there's a there's a low-speed corners which having the car a little bit on its nose with the rear up is better because the the, the front grip is there a little bit more, the, the wing angle, the front wing angle is there a little bit better. So you get a bit more front end, the low-speed corners. And then if you can drop the rear of the car, um, the the stability and the diffuser starts working harder, and the stability of the rear of the car gets better. So a whole new learning curve, I think, for these cars as far as ground effect, maximum use of the ground effect is concerned. It's not it's not just black and white like the old cars. Yes, they've all created downforce over the over the period of time, but I think there's a learning curve to come with these cars that that the teams don't really sort of haven't really got on top of yet. You're listening to the Aramco 2022 F1 Car Reveal Series. Aramco continuously pushed the limits of engineering. As the global energy partner of F1, they drive a shared vision to real-world innovation that aims to lower emissions, enhance performance, and drive ongoing human-led progress. Aramco, powered by Howe. We haven't talked much about the front of the car, so let's have a little bit of a look at the the nose and front wing, Mark. It's maybe a more literal interpretation of the front wing than we've seen from some of the others. The main plane, the bottom plane, is mounted directly onto the nose. We haven't got the lowest part sort of suspended off the the second element, as we've seen with some of the other cars. So do you think that's for real, or is it hiding a, a real design, do you think? I don't know. The, the the front wing's always the always the one that um you, you you're not sure about whether it's a render or or whether um they've got something else entirely. But yeah, I mean it looks in in terms of the um the profile of the of the uh, elements themselves, it, it's sort of uh, quite similar to McLaren's in that way. It's got a sort of a I guess you call it a seagull wing shape in it tapers down quite sharply at the outboard ends. Um, and the difference on, on what they presented anyway is the the nose tip sort of stands proud of the the first element. But, um, yeah, I, let, let's wait and see. we see some spy shots of the real car. What do you make of it, Gary? Because you can make a case for taking that slightly more orthodox approach, can't you? Yeah, I I like the idea of of what uh, Aston Martin and uh, Mercedes or McLaren have come up with, and the fact they've got that slot gap right across the front of it to act as a as a sort of um, leading edge slat, which means that the the flow through the middle of it um, 
underneath the nose profile through the middle there helps the 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 center of the car get more airflow through into into the underfloor. Um, it could be a you know a missed trick by Alfa Romeo because it's it's not a you know it's not a common thing by any means just because two cars have done it, but it's something that I I like the idea of because as I say it's it's you get stagnation on on the front of the the front of the wing. The airflow has to decide when it's when the car's coming at it. The airflow has to decide what might what where the air's going to split and go over the top of the wing and, and go underneath the wing. And basically, when you get that piece in the middle, it's got the wing and it's got a, an opening underneath it, and then it's got the nose connected to it. So the blockage there is much greater than uh, than on the Aston Martin or the on the McLaren. And the fact that the airflow could decide on the front wing what what it wants to go through the slot gap, what it wants to go underneath it, and the Second flap on the on the Aston Martin and Mercedes was the mounting of the wing, really, and that connected up to the underfloor, the under nose surface. So there was like a continuation of that nose surface dropping into the second the secondary flap, pulling air through that slot gap. So I think the airflow in the middle of the car on both those other two cars would be a little bit better, tidier than the airflow on on, on the, this car. I think that's also why the the inner part of the front flaps looks like it's got a bit more angle on it um, because they're trying to use that to pull the airflow back in underneath the nose. I mean, it's you want, obviously you've got these cars coming along here. You've got a, a wing that's two metres wide um, and you want to use the maximum of that you can. And then you've got these two big front wheels coming at you and that's just displacing flow. So the gap between the inside of the two wheels and the chassis is still basically the the gap that the airflow can get through. And then you've got underneath the chassis. And as I say, I think the McLaren and the Aston Martin are better at bringing more airflow through underneath the chassis than this. But it's a small percentage, you know. It's not not a, a massive make or break of it, but uh, if I was Alpha Tori and I'd seen the the uh, Aston Martin and the, and the McLaren, I would be heading into a little bit of a research program on, on if you put a slot gap through there and separated the nose. But that's a big thing to do, you know. It's it's easy enough to come up with a solution, but again, it could it could mean crash tests and all sorts of stuff. So it's not a, a quick fix if, if it is a good, you know, as a positive. And I think it might just be a positive. Well, you never know; they might be so quick they've got one to run on the car tomorrow at Mizano, just like that. Although I think that will have been uh, a bit of sneakiness on their part. Were there any other things about this car that, that caught your eye, Gary? Um, well, it's you know, it's, again, it's hard to decipher whether what's what's real and what's not real. Um, the the you can see the splitters in the in the leading edge of the the underfloor. Um, there's obviously the outside splitter, which you know I've sort of christened the replacement barge board as such, um, because the you know you're trying to get the flow to go around the outside of that and separate the flow that's going under the floor from the the wake behind the front tires. And then inside of there, there's also two more splitters, vertical splitters as such. Not quite vertical, but close to vertical. And they are very, very powerful because they turn turn the airflow out. Um, you know, on last year's cars, if you imagine, we had all those little turning vanes and that and the turned up section on the on the edge of the of the floor. And this year's car is no, no different. I mean, you want to take as much airflow in there as you can and then manage it. So you want some of that airflow to be turned outwards which helps seal the side pod because you're putting airflow outwards. Um, so while you're, while you're able to do that, there's no airflow coming inwards. Um, so basically the diffuser is working on the, on the, mainly working on the area between the two inner vertical um, turning vanes. 
So that's that column of air in the middle. And then that gets accelerated underneath the car, down through the tunnels and into the diffuser. So those turning vanes can be quite powerful. And you can see there's a, there's a curve on them. They head outwards at the trailing edge. Um, but the detail of it we can't see, obviously. Um, my main thing with this this car is the the simplicity and the lack of having to be too imaginative on the side pod arrangement, I suppose. It's just, it looks pretty good. And as I say, in my column about it, I've sort of related it to a dolphin swimming through the water, you know, there's there's no turbulence comes off it. And that's really what a racing car is. You want to get the cross-sectional area of the car um, diminishing as you go rearwards. And that's very difficult because of the um, the rear wheels, because that they're a fixed cross-sectional area. The front wheels are a fixed cross-sectional area. Um, so you've got to try to sort of exploit that flow and make sure that it's it's able to expand as it goes rearwards and get pulled through there faster just because that's what the air wants to do. And I think the whole car is a neat and tidy concept, to be honest. And Mark, AlphaTauri has specialised in neat and tidy concepts with quite sensible, pragmatic decisions made under technical director Jody Egginson in recent years. That's helped them improve nicely. 16 times last year, they had a car in the, the top six fastest in qualifying. Do you think that kind of form is, is possible this year, given that while it, it's a good team, it is still one of the smaller teams and the teams that it's competing with, the McLarens, the Ferraris, Alpines, they're all teams that have got better facilities and, and they're upwardly mobile and kind of should be ahead of them on, in terms of their raw materials. Yeah, it, it, it's sort of out of their hands, really. It depends whether those big teams um, have got it right first time because it could be that just doing a nice elegant plain simple car around the base mechanicals that red bull have given you and that you don't need to devote any resource or time to that might just be a car that's quick straight out of the box while the more complex ones might you know take a while to refine you don't know it's sort of out of their hands but yeah i mean last year it was on average the fifth quickest car, but was it within a tenth of a second of being the third quickest car, which was, you know, for a little team and going head to head on pace with Ferrari and McLaren was was quite remarkable, really. And had they had not had a rookie, not contributing very much to the constructors' score, they would have been in that battle for third in the constructors' championship. So there's still there's still some headroom. Um, in, in, in what what they could achieve, I think, and but whether it's um, whether these regs have done it a favour or not, I, it, it, it's sort of out of their hands. Yeah, the thing the thing you're right there, Mark. You know, we what the cars we've seen at the minute, the uh, the Aston Martin, um, the McLaren, and the Alfa Tori. You know, they are their their hope is they are the best of the rest because that's that's really where they should stand behind the, the the big boys now they're hoping the big boys will consist of mercedes and uh and red bull if there's such a thing as big boys we don't quite know where ferrari will drop into that could be in competition with these guys or it could be in competition with the other two um but you know the, the competition these three cars that we've seen and i'm not classifying the Haas in there yet because it's not really the car and i'm not i'm definitely not classifying the red bull we've seen in there but these three real cars that we've seen or most of them real cars that we've seen are strongly in competition with each other, um, and I, you know, the, they they all look good. They all have their their positives and their negatives. But I think Alpha Tori, my book, might just have that little bit. Might just have that little bit on the on the other two, which 
doesn't need much to just nip in there. Um, and they've shown they can do it, but they haven't quite done it. But, uh, you know, maybe they can read the regulations better. Maybe they have good gut feel. Maybe it's not all about producing data. Um, so I think time will tell, but uh, I like what I see. Yeah, and we should note they've also talked about the need to future-proof the design of the car. In fact, that's a phrase James Keir and McLaren also used. And actually having sort of a sensible design like that should mean that they can take off in whatever direction they want to development-wise. Everyone's going to be looking very closely at, at rival cars. So that's going to be quite an interesting thing to follow. So maybe AlphaTauri can uh, can do well on, on that score. But yeah, generally seem to be quite positive about AlphaTauri. Gary certainly is. Mark, are you quite upbeat as well? I am, yeah, and um, it's got a, it's it's always a team. It's like the plucky underdog, isn't it? And so uh, it has a, it's a lot of um, feel good when it does well. So yeah, I'm, uh, I'm quite, um, I'm quite intrigued to see how they get on. I think we should also very, very briefly divert off AlphaTauri just to mention the changes in Formula One that have been announced and agreed. So quickly, Mark, we now know there's going to be three sprint races: Imola, Red Bull Ring, Interlagos. Pole position officially will be based on whoever's quickest in qualifying on Friday, and then there's more points. I think it's eight down to one for the top eight. Do you think that's a sensible strategy for this year? Yes, I do. I think um, if we're going to have the sprint races, that's that's the optimum sort of um, st- structure for it, and uh, it's correct that the person fastest in qualifying is the the setter of pole position, and not whoever wins the sprint race. Um, I like that, and yeah, I like the I like the repositioned points. Also, I think it's a it's a good move. Yeah, I must admit, philosophically, I'm not keen on points for anything other than the Grand Prix itself. But I do think it's necessary to have those more points for the sprint race in order for it to work. So it's yeah, sometimes you have to be pragmatic. You can't be uh, purely uh, sticking to a, a set philosophy on things. There is there is you know, three sprint races as you say, so eight points for the for the win. That's that's twenty four points, so it's still less than one win of a main race. So I don't think it's going to really you know be a big contender for the championship that 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 one event because it'd be very unlikely to be honest that one guy will win all three of those races. You never know, but I'm just saying it's, if it was much more points than that, then suddenly it become a dominating factor. It's not so. It's equivalent to one more race in the championship. Yeah, you're right. It's not changing the game completely. One thing I think, Gary, I'm going to know what your response is to. They've also said, with reference to Spa, that they've changed the rules about points being awarded. So there has to be at least two green flag racing laps, so not under the safety car or the virtual safety car, in order for points to be awarded at all. So we couldn't have what happened at Spa last year. And they've also created now four different tiers of, of how much of the race is completed. So if there's only... If there's between two laps and less than 25%, it's only six points for a win. The top five get points. 25 to just under 50% is 13 for a win, down to one for ninth and so on. I won't do the whole breakdown. But they've adopted this sliding scale, which I'm sure was an idea that I read somewhere. Do you remember where, Gary? Um, I can't remember right now, Ed. But uh, yeah, I think I, I have a clue. That I, I know where it come from. But it is logical. You know, it's, 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 it's very, very easy to work out. We, we had the full points after 75% race distance. So the sort of precedent was there uh, for something like that. But it's, yeah, you know, it's better to have it black and white, X percentage of race, X X uh, points, that's it, end of story. Yeah, just seems like a, a logical move. And we should say for those who are waiting for the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix analysis, that was discussed 
in the commission meeting. There was feedback taken and there's still some work to be done on that analysis. So in the coming days is when the FIA said we'll get some more on that so people can continue to discuss and debate that while we wait for that. Well, thanks very much for your insight, Mark Hughes and Gary Anderson. Head to therace.com and don't forget the hyphen as there's loads to read there, including Gary's in-depth technical analysis, not just of the Alpha Tari, but also all the other cars that have been launched. Check out also our sister podcasts. We've got podcasts covering MotoGP, IndyCar and Formula E, as well as Bring Back V10s, which tells classic F1 stories. And if video is your thing, check out our YouTube channel. The launches keep coming thick and fast, so join us tomorrow for everything you need to know about the new Williams FW44. Thanks for listening to the Aramco 2022 F1 Car Reveal Series.